Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, wherever and whenever you may be, and welcome to episode 82 of the Fate of Black podcast. I'm Mom Woman. And I'm Hannah Flint. Yes, it's just the two of us today. Clarice Lockery. Just the two of is... us. <laughs> Clarice Lockery had an unbroken streak of being on every Fate to Black podcast, but it has now been broken. And to be honest... She had paid leave to use up, right? <laughs> Otherwise it doesn't... She had to get it. She needed to use it or she does, doesn't get to transfer over to the next like calendar year. So, <laughs> Indeed, indeed. Uh, but yes, uh, it's just the two of us today. We're going to hold it down. But we may yet hear some thoughts from Clarice during this podcast. Ooh. You never know. But before that, this week... I speak to the Women King's own Tuzo Mbedu while we review Gina Prince Brightwood's historical epic. We tackle the documentary Nothing Compares, which draws a straight line between the revolutionary politics of Sinead O'Connor and today's pop divas. The Beast is released in Marvel's one-take Halloween special, Werewolf by Night. And in our hot take, we decide whether Clarice should be booted off the pod for good. But seriously... (laughs) 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 <laughs> <laughs> let's talk about chris pratt as well i guess because the man is in a mario trailer and that mario trailer needs to be discussed but before... well, yeah it's just literally chris pratt question mark <laughs> <laughs> and that's the end of our hot take section no uh, we're gonna go into a little bit more detail than that later on but first of all hannah how's your week been oh it's been quite quite hectic mm. um I think yours has been more hectic, but we have both been uh, involved with Love London Film Festival, kicked mm-hmm. off on Wednesday. So yeah, we've got quite a lot. We've got, you know what's really cool? We've got loads of stuff for the Fade to Black podcast that we've recorded and interview-wise. I have, I am so happy I got to interview Alejandro Gonzalez Inuritu yeah. uh, today for Bardo. <laughs> I've got an interview with... Um, uh, Sally Hosseini for uh, The Swimmers coming awesome. up. Who have you got? Um, I think uh, we may get one Guillermo del Toro for <gasps> Pinocchio, which would be Guillermo! very exciting. I'm seeing some footage on Monday and the uh, interviews will be taking place next week. So, oh, exciting! Yes, Glamour is one I've been wanting to tick off my list for a while, so it'll be fun. Um, and he's also daddy this today because we're recording after he's called out some bullshit, <laughs> stupid article. Yeah, he did about Martin Scorsese. Like, you have to write some real toxic shit to really get a rise out of Guillermo <laughs> del Toro. He's like a cuddly bear, like yeah. nothing. He's like, he's like Switzerland. Now he's like <laughs> allied forces coming in. <laughs> Guillermo is honestly one of the best Twitterers in the verse. I can't remember seeing a bad tweet from him. Every time I go on his feed, there's always something interesting, not only in that he's bigging up a film, but it's how he bigs it up. It's the details that he notices and points out in the tweets and how he writes about it. Like, it, it's really, really interesting all the time. If you, if you don't follow him, rectify that immediately. You know what I've been thinking a lot? And I suppose because we're getting so much access to talk to people about films nowadays as well and in, in in a way that feels quite meaningful rather than you know five minute session for just junkets you know actually getting some time to get into it mm-hmm. I don't know I feel like I'm falling in love with film even harder because mm-hmm. even if you might not think a film's perfect or might 
there's so much stuff I'm so interested because to make a film is such an achievement it's like mm -hmm. a miracle isn't it so like mm -hmm. when I'm I feel like so much of when I watch films though, I'm just kind of like blown away by certain elements of it that even if I might not have like totally loved it, like even Blonde, I'm kind of blown away by some of the shots they did and all that, the costumes oh, and stuff that. I can still, you know. Yeah. Um, yep, no, but, I mean, so you yeah, know. I feel like I'm like reinvigorating <laughs> cinema. Yeah, no, I know what you mean. Cause like, uh, I, I also got to chat with Inarita today for another podcast and I have some, a lot of mixed thoughts about Bardo, but prepping for that interview and listening to him talk today made me admire the effort that he put into it even if not all of it worked for me and just prepping and reading reviews reading interviews as I was getting ready for my own interview gave me a newfound appreciation for Inuitu and Bardo you know I think for me and, well, I, and oh, when we played the interview a few weeks actually because yeah. it's coming out pretty soon mm -hmm. You know, because I've just written a memoir. <laughs> yeah, I thought I, of you. I, I thought of you while you know doing the prep because you know the, yeah. the big part of Bardo. <laughs> this is not a Bardo review, well, I promise auto you. Auto fiction. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he's getting back in touch with his roots. There's a whole thing about the Mexican American divide, and because of you yeah. and Tunisia and all the rest. Yeah, of no, I did. I, did. I, I definitely <laughs> got to look, look, I'm not gonna look. We've teased it enough, but like, <laughs> did I mention my book? Yes. Did yes, I mention yeah. I went to Tunisia? Of course. I did. <laughs> um, did I kind of swoon? Well, I did not expect that. I mean, <laughs> is it Gonzalez or is it gorgeous? Because that man is fine, <laughs> especially in person. But enough Bardo chat. It's time for some Woman King chat. My king, the Europeans wish to conquer us. They will not stop until the whole of Africa is theirs. We must fight back for our people. My name is God. You are asking me to take them to war. War. Some things are worth fighting for. In the 1800s, a group of all-female warriors protect the African kingdom of Dahomey with skills and fierceness unlike anything the world has ever seen. Faced with a new threat, General Naniska trains the next generation of recruits to fight against a foreign enemy that's determined to destroy their way of life. This is led by Gina Pespidewood and Richard <laughs> Dennis. No, it's not. Stop. Come on. It's the best what? accent you've ever done. Honestly. <laughs> that was so, it was so good. Even like the kind of like the kind of slight, like, elongating syllable. <laughs> I was like, oh, we nailed it. <laughs> We're going to be talking more about the accents in this film in just a little bit. But this is directed by Jean Prince Bideward and written by Dana Stevens, based on a story she wrote with Maria Bello. I know, white women. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Um, and it stars Viola Davis, Tuzon Bedu, Lashana Lynch, Sheila Tim, and John Boyega. So, as we mentioned, uh, I got to speak to Tuzon Bedu ahead of this film. She gives a fantastic performance as Nawi, who is one of the young recruits uh, who's being trained to be an Agogir. Um, and Tuzo Mbedu, she's been on the rise for a while. The Underground Railroad, if you have not watched that show, rectify it immediately. She is unbelievable in it. And she was really on the come up. 
just from that show. So to see her take an- another leap with the Women King as she does here is just awesome to see. And yeah, we talk a little bit about the Underground Railroad in addition to this film and just how she's navigated Hollywood after the Underground Railroad and what she's now expecting after the Women King. I think it's a really fun chat. And here it is, me and Tuzo Mbedu. Welcome to the Fate of Black podcast, Tuzo Mbedu. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Great to see you again. Congratulations on this film. It's fantastic. I've seen it twice now. The second time I saw it, there was a ton of black people in the audience. It hits differently when there's black yeah. people in the audience. <laughs> yeah, like yeah, yeah, yeah. there were people kissing their teeth. There was a hand. There yeah. was a, there was all the cultural recognition, which is great. Has there been any particular audience reaction that has stuck with you, given that you've hopefully now had the chance to see it with an audience a couple of times? Yeah. So I've seen it six times now. Wow. Um, I was in South Africa um, this past week. The first audience, you know, it it was a mix of races, but majority of them were celebrities. So, you know, a little bit more conserved and to do. (laughs) And then in the second audience, civilians. Oh, my goodness. That (laughs) was great. At the very end of it, they started doing like a chant, the Agoje Husu chant. It was absolutely amazing. It was everything and more. Yeah, <laughs> that's fantastic. One of the biggest scenes that gets an audience reaction is a scene between Naoi and Aniska. When Naoi says to Aniska, it is you who is arrogant. And yeah. if you <laughs> the reaction, it's like, eh, because <laughs> as we all know, you don't talk to your elders like that. Not at in all. In our culture. It was even, it was even like, it was hard for me to even get to that. That's place. what I was going to ask, because is there any part of you which is thinking, oh, damn. I'm going to be yeah, disrespectful. I, there were a lot of moments where um, it didn't come easily for me to be as combative as Naui because it's it's just not a thing that's done in African culture. Yeah. You know, so I had to 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 really dig deep and and find the wound where her reflex comes from because she says it, you know, um, as a means of protecting herself. Even, you know, the first time they meet where she says, you look too young and she says, I work hard. And she says, you know, all our lives they've told us about the Agogia, but you look like a regular old woman to me. I was like, girl, <laughs> you know? So there are moments where I was like, where is that coming from? Where is that wound? Why do you feel you know, the need to protect yourself to the point where you um actively challenging someone who could cut your head off? Mm-hmm. You know, so, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, I read that Viola says that she wants you to play her if there's ever a biopic made of her, which is... An amazing compliment. Um, would you just be studying her from take to take? And what were some of the subtle things she does that you picked up on? So that's the funny thing. We we're actually discussing this with John and Siv the other day that um, when you're working with Viola and you're watching her here, you're obviously 1000% in your character. You're not taking notes on acting mm-hmm. right in the moment. And so there are things that you miss that you then see on screen and you go, oh snap, I didn't even realize that she was doing that in real time. And so it, it really is about that, you know, the more one, one gets to work with her, the more one is observing her, but also observing the subtleties that you could miss just in, in everyday life and applying that. And I think mm-hmm. she's, she's one that I've tried to model my process and, you know, and, and just choices around. Like I'd have moments back in the day where I'd be watching TV. It's her and, and Mr. Denzel where watching a performance, I would pause it and just take a moment to 
to take stock of what it is that has moved me in that moment. And I guess, you know, that's informed how I perform as well. And so I think it's something that I could apply just all around in my character, um, all the characters that I do. Mm, I love that. Um, so in this movie, you get to get to kick quite a bit of ass and it's very entertaining to watch. How much of what you had to learn with the intense fight training that you went through, can you still do today? I don't know, you know, it would be a case of let's try it out. Um, I believe that now where I am now, uh, I'm in a better place now than when we were actually shooting because, you know, we had pre-production training, but we're still, as we're shooting, we're still trying to, you know, to get used to it. And like from what's this, after we came back, came back from the hiatus, Viola and I were on set every single day. Mm. And so when it came to stunts training, it's either we were training just before we went to set or at the end of the day, you know, because we don't want that to slack. And after wrapping the shoot, I put myself in martial arts classes and I carried on with, with training with our strength trainer from the movie. And so now I feel like, okay, I only now do I feel like I'm, I know what I'm doing. So mm -hmm. I, can, I can do it. <laughs> <laughs> So what you're saying is I should not put a knife and a rope near you because if you if, if I press you off, you could get you, could, you could still get my eyes, is what you're saying. I think so. Do not. <laughs> do not even try. <laughs> I would never. I would never. <laughs> um, but has all this made you want to bolster your action credentials that much more and do another film in this vein? Or do you feel like your hunger has been sated on that front for now? Uh um, I don't know if my team would be happy to hear me say that I definitely want to keep doing it. Um, <laughs> having worked with Danny Hernandez, um, our stunt coordinator, he's done, you know, uh, movies like John Wick, Atomic Blonde, um, The Old Guard, um, The Gray Man, absolutely brilliant uh, stunt coordinator. And having worked with him, I remember just having a conversation with him and saying, you know, I would like to carry on doing action, but maybe a different type of action just to, you know, to grow my vocab within this space mm -hmm. and he said the best thing for you to do is keep going like don't stop prepare for the next opportunity in advance mm -hmm. which I, I guess is what I did with the woman king as well because I don't know when the audition was I auditioned for the woman king I think April either March or April 2021 but I started preparing for the audition by like reading books and stuff online October 2020 and so this is what I want to do with the action, you know, keep at it because one, I did fall in love with it, but two, I want to be more than ready when the next opportunity comes. Absolutely. I like that. So there's a phrase, uh, strong black woman, uh, it's come a trope of sorts and said a lot, a lot, a lot of times. Um, what, what are your personal thoughts about that phrase? And do you think it's right or wrong to apply that to this film and the characters in the film? Um, I, I'm not going to say whether it's right or wrong, because obviously, you know, it means different things to different people. Mm -hmm. um, what I like about what this film did was humanize the strong black woman, right? Because what's happened just historically or in everyday life is that if you're strong, then people think that they can throw anything and everything at you and not care about the results thereof, right? On your mental, your physical and emotional health right and so when creating this film what was very important to us as the cast and the director was not stripping them away of the humanity especially because they're actively fighting and and killing people as you know as a means of, of of protecting themselves and their kingdom so it wasn't about making them just you know 
what's what's this just slasher people because again historically you see it in the books black black women are described as savage well black people but um savage and beastly you know mm -hmm. th there's a lack of humanity in that and so for us in creating and building our characters and the world it was about no they're still fully human with desires with with fears with hopes um who feel pain who bleed you know when they're hurt and so even with the term strong black woman it's still very much a human woman you mm -hmm. can't always be throwing stuff at her and expect her not to react at some point yeah 100 um nawi has heard all these things about the agajir at the start of this movie about how they drink from the skulls of the people the men they killed that turn out to be false and you've been in this business for a while now what's something you thought was definitely true going in that reality has now told you that it's something much different hmm let's see i think i think and i don't know how to phrase this properly <clears throat> so you'll bear with me cool. you know it's, it's that thing of coming into an industry thinking that you can be anything right because i have a theatrical background um i did drama in university and in in theater you can be an 80 year old white woman it's in mm. how you present yourself and sell yourself to the audience, right? You can literally be anything. And then coming into this industry where you have tried and tested yourself time and time again, you know, you've been credit for it, you have a degree, you have this, that, and the other, then you come into the industry and they say, oh no, because you're a dark skinned black woman, this is the, you know, this is what you're confined to. You know, you're struggling with drugs, you're fighting the father of your child, you don't have this, that, and the other. And you go, oh, snap, this, this is the politics of, of who I am. But then, hello, Woman King, <laughs> which is now rewriting the narrative back to what I initially believed. You know, mm. so it's, 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 it's a gift in that sense where this is what I always wanted to be. This is what I, I always fought to be. I've always wanted to do a role like this. But when I got into this industry, they said, no, you can't. But now mm. I did. I love, I love that this movie gave that to you. I mean, that's yeah. actually one of the things I want to talk about because the sisterhood and the camaraderie between these characters is really felt uh, on screen. And I'm sure that it was a similar vibe when you're on set. What were some of the things that you found that you were able to do when making this film because of the environment you were in that you probably wouldn't be able to do in a typical production where you'd be maybe one of two Black women on set? You know, I think um, more than anything, you know, it was, it's a female-led cast, but also our crew was predominantly female. So our DVP, our, you know, head of departments, um, mostly women, our first AD was a woman. And it's a case of, you know, on other sets, you know, and, and we have things, our bodies go through things monthly as women mm -hmm. and not having to over explain how you're feeling at any point in time, but also knowing that, you know, your director is always super aware of what every single person is going through for some reason. I don't know how Gina does it, you know, um, at any given moment. Like I would have, like, I, I think I had two days, like two separate occasions where I just wasn't feeling okay. Just emotionally, I was a little depleted. And so I withdrew from everyone, but not in a way where it was like dramatic, where, oh, stay away from Tusa today. This is, you know, this is, this is what it is. It was just, I wasn't okay. 
So I withdrew, kept out of everybody's way. And then at the end of the day, I get a text from Gina asking, are you okay? You know that you can talk to me. You know, stuff like that where, and again with Viola, Lashana and Sheila, where people support you without you even realizing it just because you, you exist in this world and their nature is that of you know nurturer and it's it's generous it's not mm. something that you know you actively seek out on a set and so it's refreshing when you get it without having to particularly ask for it yeah i bet it is um in preparing for this interview, I, you know, was doing my due diligence and looking at some of the stuff that you were saying for the Underground Railroad press tour, and that show rightfully sort of introduced you to the international audience and blew up. You got tons of awards, nominations, all the rest of it. How was life navigating Hollywood after that for you? Was it everything that you were hoping and expecting it to be? And are you expecting another shift for yourself in terms of navigating the industry after this film? Um, I am grateful for, you know, for the Underground Railroad and everything that came with it. I will say that um, Underground Railroad came out during COVID. And so everything, you know, was like, uh, was on Zoom. Um, and I'm an introvert. People don't believe it because of my social media, but I am. And so when when when, when it came out, I didn't feel as overwhelmed as I thought I would, mm. right? But also I'm still relatively new to this industry and I'm of the thinking that I still have a lot to, to work on to get to where I think, you know, and I'll, I'll feel like, okay, you know, I did it, you know, I, I've made a little bit of a mark, um, but it, it's, I'm surrounded by a great team um, who are super supportive of me and my decisions. They know that I'm very, you know, specific with the type of work that I choose and it, it, it's, it was an amazing experience. Like everything has unfolded in a way that I thought I would at least have to put in five years worth of work to get to that place. So I am very grateful. I don't know what life post the woman King is going to be like, but I'm in a place where I am content and I am happy as a result of, you know, the underground railroad. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'll, 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 I'll leave it at that. It's, it's, <laughs> it's been an amazing journey. And then doing, you know, awards season for the first time this year after having wrapped um, The Woman King in South Africa, that was an amazing experience. Everybody received me so warmly. I thought, you know, because, you know, you watch the movie and it's this Hollywood this, you Hollywood that, and mm -hmm. you have like this particular idea of what Hollywood and ego means in different spaces. But I was like, I was really, really warmly received by everyone. And it shaped, it, it, it gave me, you know, a, a good view of what Hollywood could be. And I'm grateful for it. Absolutely. Uh, I can't wait to see where your journey goes next. Tuesday, everybody. Thank you so much for your time. This has been a pleasure. Congrats on the film again. Thank you. Thank you very much. A big part of why I was excited for this film was the Gina's Prince Bythewood factor. Um, I'm just a massive fan of Love and Basketball. I know you are too. It's a bona fide classic, which just never gets old. Um, and she's taken a leap with the old guards, the Netflix film, just in terms of action filmmaking, in addition to what she's good at, which is spotlighting black women and that femininity. With this film, with this canvas that she has, I think this is arguably her biggest and best film yet because she gets to do that on just a whole 
different scale. Did you find that when you watched the film? I'm reluctant to say it's her best film because mm-hmm. I think Love and Basketball as a debut is one of the greatest. And I think mm-hmm. when you consider the kind of context of how she made that compared to where she is now, mm-hmm. like what I do believe is someone who's obviously, as you know, been a huge fan of her for years. Mm-hmm. I definitely feel like this is a film that needs to, that she was ready for now to make. And I think she is basically, and what's been interesting is, you know, we've been very privileged of being able to speak to a lot of people about this film and mm-hmm. speaking both to Lashana Lynch and John Boyega. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the things that John said was it, it seems like she, this was the right time with the right director, with the right cast. Like I can, you know, five, it, they're both like, if five years later I can do it, I need it to be now. Mm-hmm. And so I love the idea that the old guard was really kind of like a springboard for Gina to mm-hmm. access the kind of action movie and kind of, you know, um, trial and error some things. And don't get me wrong, I love the old guard, but this is a superior film, 100%. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's superior because of the attention to detail that, again, you could only get, as much as it's written by white women, there is no, there is no doubt in my mind that the mm-hmm. actors... Gina and the black mm-hmm. women involved in this film definitely put their signature on that script as well mm-hmm. to add that sense of authenticity. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, what I, I want to ask you, um, Amon, as you have Nigerian heritage, mm-hmm. um, and you know, again, there are there are nuances in this film that we were in the same screening of that um I knew what people were laughing at and knew why, mm-hmm. and I knew exactly because there are certain ways, enunciations, certain like certain like looks certain like kissing the teeth, the certain little situation that are so specific to like, you know, certain African cultures, Nigerian, especially like black British as well. And so what was that like for you kind of seeing those moments, especially with John Boyega? Because <laughs> <laughs> I did not expect to laugh so much at him going, go, go, go. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, John Boyega, it felt like he was channeling all my uncles in his portrayal of uh, King Gezzy. <laughs> yeah, that's what um, it is. Everyone, yeah. I felt like everyone had an uncle or knew yeah. the uncle yeah. <laughs> or auntie. <laughs> yeah. But uh, honestly, that multimedia screening that you speak of was one of the, one of my favorite screening experiences of all time. Um, definitely my favorite screening experience of the year so far. I actually watched this film a couple of weeks earlier. It was a much smaller screening. There was about 10 to 15 people there. And some of them were black people. But Watching that film with a multimedia where the audience was packed and the vast majority of the audience were black people, it just hits completely differently, Mm. completely differently. All the cultural signifiers that you mentioned just made me laugh. There was one moment where uh, (laughs) uh, John Boyega, one one of King Gezo's wife, sort of storms off in the house. And John Boyega's like, you, you, go, turn to her. And it's just beautiful. I have never been in a screening where so many people have audibly kissed their teeth. And it yeah. just it just reminded me of my home environment growing up at times, which was great. Um, and yeah, I, it, it's the, the, the cultural recognition um, of certain factors. Even when, and I talked to Tuzo Mbedu about this, there's one moment in the film where she, because she's she's kind of very precocious and she's her, her attitude gets her in trouble at times. 
And she at one point tells General Naniska Viola Davis, it is you who is arrogant. And the entire, like, probably the entire one is yeah. like, eh? Because eh, you yeah. know in your culture, in our culture, you don't speak to your elders yeah. like that. It's a yeah, big no-no. Yeah, 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 no-no. yeah, 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 yeah. And just that, it's, it's just so amazing. Like, you know, growing up in my household, there are certain films where you feel that with like a Lion King or a Sister Act, where the react or coming to America, where the reactions of what's happening in the film are really you you can feel how the family is reacting to it as you're watching, and I it felt mm. like that watching that film in the multimedia it was really special. One of the things I really enjoyed about it, just on that kind of context of um, recognizable dynamics mm-hmm. between black women, you know, you know, and I don't want to say black people because it's specifically African I think as well like the specific and I I, I, as much as this is historical I think there are definitely modern elements in it like those kind of cultural kind of you know ticks Mm -hmm. but also fashion wise and braiding like I'm pretty sure they didn't have like like I don't know some of the eyeshadows is on on like (laughs) full slashes I was like I mean they look great but I, I think in a way it's it didn't feel it's a way I kind of compare it to to like you know like you know Yorgos Lanthimos like mm-hmm. adds that kind of it that kind of contemporary feel to it or like with the favorite or or Marie Antoinette you know I don't think there's necessarily a problem with having that if you feel if it feels like authentically everyone's doing it it didn't take me out it didn't take me out I still felt like I was going back there but it also mm-hmm. felt it more kind of I I understood these these women because. I've met women like this or, mm-hmm. you know, these people I've, I've been in, luckily I've been in circles where I've been grown up or whatever. Mm-hmm. And, and how do you feel about that? Cause I think I, I know, I've, you know, someone I spoke to found that was like, found that a bit weird, but I was like, mm. no, no, I completely agree with what you're saying. And I just love that this is a film and this is such a Gina Prince Bidewood signature. This film takes in the totality of the black women. Like, I could have been... It's very easy to imagine a lesser version of this film where the women are still kicking ass and all of that is as cool as it is. But that is where the focus lies for the entire film. And that's not what this film is. There's yeah. a big part of the film that is women kicking ass. But yeah. they get into the femininity. They get into romance, in a sense. They get into the sisterhood, the camaraderie that really comes through the screen at yeah. all times. And I completely loved all of that yeah I think it definitely challenges you know even if I thought it was a really interesting idea that like you know it kind of Naniska she's kind of like Ripley (laughs) if Mm, you know what I mean it's like she needs to be devoid of like emotion or hysteria or anything like that she feels Mm. like she has to do that for job and actually what I kind of love is this the the kind of unraveling but then it also she's like so tightly wound and she has to be because you know and I think Viola did and this is what on Viola Davis she like carries so much weight and like she carries every bit like you know there's a this comes really traumatic storyline in this Mm -hmm. as well I mean um and I think the the individual identities of the key you know she let him Usos, Lashana Mm -hmm. and Viola like I think what I loved is just how much strength there is not just seeing strength literal strength but like strength of character like they're funny Mm -hmm. they're kind of as you said petulant they can be vulnerable they can be like 
like nerdy they, they have they're multifaceted I think that's what literally everyone's been yearning for mm-hmm. I mean this is like a strong female characters I'm sorry it's like, but like that is, what it is. <laughs> yeah. um when I first saw some footage of this and the opening sequence and I actually quite cried a few times in this but like mm-hmm. just for me the action sequences mm-hmm. were amazing were brilliantly shot and the opening sequence um I actually that I kind of was crying it kind of reminded me of you know, in Wonder Woman, that no man's land moment where she goes, he's like, I'll go up there. And then it's like, oh, it felt, I felt it. It felt, and it's like, there wasn't anything about that faux feminist moment, really. It was just like, these women are here to do the job and to see them in action and the choreography and the cinematography of these fight scenes, I was like holding my breath. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, I completely agree. Not only is the action just badass to watch, but from the first scene onwards, there's character through action. Like, there's a scene in that first, uh, there's a bit in that first scene where the Charlotte Lynch's is all gear gets hit. And the look that she gives this man is like, you <laughs> dare even dare touch you. me. And then she just takes him out and then Brad Edwards gets the nails out and stabs him. And it's just awesome. But yeah. um, just from that, you can, you get a sense of Izzel gear and how she bites and that, filters into scenes where she's not fighting, she's just talking with women because she's so proud of, the, of, yeah. of where she is and what her station is and what her sort of hopes are for, uh, you know, in, and, and what her hopes and desires are for the future. We get to find out that, that out a little bit later, but you get a little sense of all of that, I feel, yeah. in that first scene. Yeah. It's awesome. Yeah, I definitely feel like Gina knew exactly what she was doing, bringing out performances. And just, again, for me, my Lashana Lynch was my MVP of the movie. Mm-hmm. Like, I know I was pushing for Thuso, and like, okay, but I actually think supporting character Lashana was it, because I think, there is, for me, there was something, I mean, <laughs> my favourite moment, and you know what, I'm not going to ruin it, but there is a moment which is so... Like when you you know similar to your moment where she gets hit early mm-hmm. on, it's like mm-hmm. that moment where it's like it's not even a thought. It's like just a moment where there's that I teamwork, think, that system. Yeah, like we're I know not even. Exactly what like, you mean. Yeah, so I know. I don't want to ruin it. I want everyone to experience it on their own first time. But like, there's, it's just like it's like they don't even need to talk yep. to communicate. They yep. know exactly what's right. It's my and, favorite moment in the film too. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, I just think it's one of these epic, like you know. It's like an epic historical film with women that feels like, you know, not trying to hammer feminism home. And also, mm-hmm. like, you know, I think we, we wanted to talk about this because one of the yeah. things I'm really struggling with is the idea that, you know, when I when I was before I'd seen the film, I'd seen people tweeting and I'd seen stories saying it doesn't address it, downplays their slavery and all this type of stuff. And then I watched it. I was like, I don't understand it. It's the central conflict. It begins with slavery, it ends with slavery, and all the thing in between is all fundamentally, the through line is about slavery. So the idea that, like, and then someone suggested to me when I tweeted about it, said, oh, it's because they see, they it seemed like they were apprehensive about it. It's like, yeah, they probably were. Like, do you think every Nazi wanted to be a Nazi? Do you think everyone involved in the slave trade wanted to do it? It's just what they had to do to follow orders. Like, there isn't such thing as evil. It's human beings that do these things and human mm-hmm. beings are fallible. And sometimes they do things to, for self-preservation. And I think this film is about like self-preservation and what we do and the bad things we do and what we lose out on. And I think that's definitely Naniska's storyline for sure, mm-hmm. as well as Dahomey's like, like storyline. So I think the idea that they try to 
downplay it. It's incorrect. Do I think they kind of, yeah. how often, look, look at every single white film. Look at Braveheart. <laughs> look at Gladiator. Like all of these have got historical, historical inaccuracies. Mm-hmm. Um, Mary Queen of Scots, like every pre- pretty much white film is in historical inaccuracies. And just because they got to a certain bit at the end a bit quicker than it did in real life mm. because it's a two hour film. <laughs> like mm. if you want more, read the fucking history book. Yeah. There's one thing about all those films you mentioned. Did they ever have anyone coming for historical accuracy sort of you know, controversy thing? And the answer to that question, at least in my mind, is no. Maybe maybe there was, but not, nothing to the degree of what's happened with The Women King and nothing to the degree of what happened with Selma because the same thing happened with Selma and it actually derailed its awards chances in a sense because they yeah. came for Ava DuVernay with historical inaccuracies and all this sort of stuff. All the tweets you mentioned... I was getting those tweets added at me before they'd watched the film. Um, yeah. And it just irritated me. Like, I didn't want to give it any air, so I didn't reply to them. But it was just every time when it comes to a black film, apparently films made by black women, now we're going to make a big deal out of a stalk and yeah. inaccuracy. When you haven't seen the film, as you say, yeah. it's addressed in the film. It's in the body of the film. They are not sort of, you know, backing away from this. They are taking inspiration from history and talking about it in their own way. And yeah. I found it to be very, very, stri- very striking and very well done in terms of what they did with slavery, in terms of the journey that takes King Gezo on, where he starts, where he ends up in that regard. I think it works. The one, the one thing I didn't like much like about the film, the Malik character, he is a slaver who sort of comes to Dahomey, uh, which is sort of his homeland is where his mother was born and that was his mother's last wish. And there's a journey that he goes on. I get what the filmmakers were trying to do, but for me, it's so quick a reversion or an arc for him that I kind of wonder how he was ever okay with being what he was at the start of this film in the first place but it's then so you know quick. what though but that's the thing i think this is but this goes back to the point about like people who like they were all sold slaves right yeah so like you can't have a judgment for this kid who's basically been raised but this because he's a mixed race character you know and yeah. he has been raised in a white world that's all he's ever known he comes to dahomey and obviously mm. well, there's a storyline there so i honestly I actually really like the way they play it because I actually mm. think it's a, there's an understanding there that you can either be on both sides of Africa. The, it didn't it didn't stop people didn't stop African people selling their own people selling this their you know, fellas. So I, I I don't mind that. I actually what, the one thing I liked about that screening though <laughs> was like everyone in the screening was like yeah I like skin boy's trouble <laughs> he's trouble even yeah. me I'm mixed I was like. Oh, yeah, he trouble, he trouble. Yeah. So I kind of like that, and I like that element because there is that, you know, insecurity. And I think it would be remiss of the film to not acknowledge that, especially when you are dealing with slave trade, because mm-hmm. obviously there are people who were taken over, and there's, you know, the whole other side of it. So again, yeah. let's not give anything <laughs> away on that. But I, yeah. I understand, but I rebut. <laughs> yeah, I rebut it. <laughs> as is your right. Um, there is only like, I'm, it bums me out to say this because I'm a big Terence Blanchard fan. Um, his work with Spike Lee on his films especially is fantastic. If you have not checked out the score for Black Klansman, it's great. If you have not checked out the score for Defied Bloods, it's great. I think with this film, there are times when the score works, but there are more times for me when it didn't. 
it just felt a little too obvious at points when it didn't need to be. Mm. And, you know, this is in some ways a harsh comparison, but I think of what Ludwig Göransson did with Black Panther score. I'm very excited to hear what he's going to be done with Black Panther Wakanda forever, because that guy for me is a genius. Um, but in terms of blending African sounds with modern sounds and doing it in a way that it augments the film without being really in your face about it in terms of the emotions it's trying to elicit, I think that score nails it, where I don't think this one quite does. Mm. Um, but I'm still excited to hear what Terrence Blanchard does next. He's an Oscar-nominated filmmaker. He just got Oscar-nominated for, for The Five Bloods. And as I say, that score is fantastic. He's done a lot of great work in the past. This one didn't do it for me, though. Mm. Honestly, I can't even remember the score. So maybe that says <laughs> something. It was just joyous yeah. and heartbreaking and epic. And, you know, it was so wonderful to see several women rather than just one, you know, mm-hmm. yeah. like the one. Yeah. Honestly, the, the double hit of The Woman King and Black Panther Wakanda Forever it's not, it's not something that happens. We are eating often. good. We are eating <laughs> good. good. Um, <laughs> yeah. And don't Just that, not uh, at the Women King screening. <laughs> oh my gosh. We <laughs> <laughs> uh, we we were, you know what? You already talked about it last podcast. We can't did I? Okay. Well, yeah, I, think no. so. I think so. Unless you edited it out. <laughs> no, I don't, I don't think I did. Oh boy. Just hire an African caterer. That's what I'm going to say. <laughs> but on that note, it's time for our screen stream or skip recommendations on The Woman King, Hannah Flint. Oh, lit. go see this on a <laughs> massive screen. Yeah. Go with your mates. Have the best time of your life. It is a screen for me. Go and watch the film. <laughs> Take your brother. What you can't Take see, listeners, is that he also has like a slightly, like he's doing it on the side. He's got like a... What would you call it? It's like he's lifting his lip up to the side bit, so it's like snarling it out. It's like a whole bit. Anyway. Honestly, I've been, I, I've, I've had some lines from John Boyega's King Gezo in my head. Some people have been the beneficiaries. I think that's the word. Maybe it's maybe recipients. The, <laughs> the recipients of voice notes of me doing John Boyega lines from this movie in a John Boyega accent. Um, they probably want me to stop, and I. I should, I, and I will, I will. I, I will not be stopped. <laughs> but yes. Um, right. From a lot of women to one woman. It's nothing compares. Everybody in music has a story in terms of what they went through. Every person's duty to themselves is to act on their feelings and to say when they think something is wrong. And take the consequences. I imagine so. The level when Nothing Compares to You became a hit was extraordinary. This song went number one everywhere in the world. I had come across an article about families who had been trying to lodge complaints against the church for sexual abuse and were being silenced. I had booked her on Saturday Night Live. Basically, everything I had been raised to believe was a lie. Nothing compares, nothing compares to (laughs) Sinead (laughs) O'Connor. 
Following the career of singer Sinead O'Connor through her rise to fame and her iconoclastic personality led her exile from the pop mainstream. This film is directed by Catherine Ferguson and written by Ferguson, Eleanor Emptage and Michael Malley. So I was lucky enough to see this um, at Sundance back in February. And it really actually, it, it was one of those things where it's part of this kind of reappraisal that we're in at the moment with kind of Britney Spears, mm-hmm. I think Jack Jackson as well. Um, and kind of looking back at um, pop stars from like, you know, 80s, 90s, noughties, mm-hmm. who have been like unfairly maligned by the press. And it's been interesting because, you know, my, I don't know what your kind of modern kind of awareness of Sinead O'Connor has been. It's mostly been in tabloid, perceiving her as kind of going being erratic. Mm-hmm. She she converted to Islam, you know, going for all these things and being in trouble. And watching this film really made me feel just like complicit and guilty that I ever kind of read that sort of stuff and had this like perception of this person when you actually once again if you look into the look into the weeds look through it you find out like oh no this woman's been like unfairly maligned and it's kind of disgusting that we no one's done anything about it yeah i knew nothing about Sinead o'connor uh before i pressed play on this documentary and i'm very glad i did press play on this documentary because she is a heck of a woman um just the uncompromising nature of her in situations where it would have been very easy to have compromised. I found that to be very impressive. And the filmmaking is also very striking. Like the, the way this film opens is really in your face. Um, we should say it opens with um, footage of Sinead walking out on stage during a televised Bob Dylan concert, stadium for the people, and she's getting booed. Yeah. That is very, very striking. And it's one of the best, like, in media res, it's not typically my favorite style of opening. But here, I think it worked fantastically. Because I was like, how did how did it get to this point? I want to know. And obviously, after that, the film rewinds, and then we track it mm. uh, to that point, and then after that point. Um, but I feel like it was a really good way to open the story. Yeah, yeah. And what's so interesting, if you think about what's going on currently with the context of like women's right and, you know, in Iran with issues of hijab and the kind of kind of militant expectations of how women mm-hmm. navigate religion, yeah. and obviously people are fighting back. Mm-hmm. It's kind of wild to even think that actually what Sinead got, you know, absolutely vilified for was calling out the Catholic Church for doing mm-hmm. like... For like systemic abuse of children, they were and kids, Hannah. They were kids, kids, right? Right, exactly. <laughs> but like, but what I mean is, like, it's insane to me. And what's so interesting is, like, all the people jumping out supporting women in Iran, especially Western women and Western people who are white, said, "Yeah, Iran, all this." It's like, oh, so <laughs> what did you have to say about the systemic sexual abuse within the Catholic Church? Because mm. it's Christianity adjacent. It's like it's. It's okay. Yeah, it's it's one of those things where you just feel like she was kind of a, like, you know, she's like Jane Fonda. She's no different to that. And like the way that women who actually have a backbone and kind of don't want to conform mm-hmm. um, and how that wrecked her career pretty much, mm-hmm. even though she was an amazing, you know, artist, somewhere she, you know, even her background and her upbringing like informed how she wanted to be. Mm-hmm. Just, it was honestly quite inspiring. And it made me kind of sad that the idea that, 
she's been so jaded by that experience that that might have kind of had such an adverse effect on her mental health and all mm. these other things. And what we lost, you know, what we lost, mm-hmm. what we could have had. Yeah. 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 No, it's frustrating for sure. Um, I, it's really interesting. We said it at the top, but the line that this film draws from Sinead O'Connor to the artists we have now who yeah. are using their platforms to do similar to what Sinead O'Connor was doing in terms of tr- speaking truth to power on their beliefs, on their political beliefs. Um, it's often hard for the first person through the door. Yeah. And Sinead O'Connor was that, but because she was brave enough to be that, that is why we get the artists now who are doing what they're doing. And yeah. I liked that the film, as grim as it is, in terms of what we lost and the frustration that comes with that. Well, yeah. Um, I mean, she was kind of before Colin Copernic, like, right? Yeah. It's like, yeah. you know, you see this all the time, people just standing. And even, like, seeing those clips from SNL. And, like, was it Joe Pesci who goes on afterwards yep. and basically mm-hmm. says, and it's just like, Joe Pesci, not you. But mm. I, don't know, I suppose he is real Catholic, you know. Mm. But, like... Yeah, it was that that kind of it was sad that that kind of the ability to switch like you had her on as an artist and then you basically like turned on her. And I thought that was kind of very uncomfortable. But I'm really glad that she was able to take part in it. It's a shame that they didn't get to use this Prince's State didn't give her permission to use the song. Apparently they said they wanted to prioritize his version, block them from actually using the song in the documentary. Come on. It's like I Will Always Love You is Whitney's song. I don't think Don Dolly Parton's going to block like mm. I will always love you and like things, right? <laughs> it's gonna be yeah. sung in that new move that that I want to dance with somebody. You know, yeah. it's gonna be playing that. Dolly's not blocking the use of that, <laughs> even though she was the one who wrote it. Mm. Right? Just feels yeah. a bit like a money grab and just being a bit spiteful there. But yeah. it's yeah. a bummer. But like, there is still a, a ton of really great Chanel kind of music in this, and even before we sort of see, um her on-stage actions and her uncompromising nature in that, we get to see a little bit of that through her music and through yeah. what she decides to speak about. And that's really great too. Yeah, I mean, there's not really... I feel like... What I like about this like documentary like this, it's like, let's go watch it, learn mm-hmm. a bit about history, respect fucking Sinead O'Connor, maybe listen to some more music of hers, mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> get, her those, get her those royalties. <laughs> um, right, so should we do screen, stream, or skip? It's in cinemas. So. Screen. Yes, screen. Uh, from one unfairly maligned individual <laughs> to another. <laughs> this is Werewolf by Night. This Halloween, you can't escape the shock the terror of Werewolf by Night. Tonight, it is every hunter for themselves. Good luck. I'll be rotting for you. But one of you is a monster masquerading as one of our own. I can't wait to find out what breed of evil you are. It's so close to midnight, and something evil's lurking in the dark. Ah, <laughs> 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 oh, what a classic. Uh, we're talking Werewolf by Night. Uh, a secret group of monster hunters gather at Bloodstone Manor following the death of their leader 
and engage in a mysterious and deadly competition for a powerful relic, which will bring them face to face with a dangerous monster. This is directed by Michael Caccino. I say again, this is directed, not just composed, but directed by Michael Caccino and written by Heather Quinn and Peter Cameron. It stars Gail Garcia Bernal, Laura, Del- Laura Donnelly, and Harriet Sansom Harris. Um, when you first heard that Michael Caccino was going to take his talents to directing, what were your thoughts? I had zero. <laughs> but I think you had a lot of thoughts. So let yeah. me let me let me throw that back at you. <laughs> Ooh, return, sir. Um, I was... The ball is in your court. <laughs> <laughs> oh gosh. I wish you guys honestly heard the stuff about that phrase, which is said off the off recording because it's a whole thing that goes back several episodes. Um but yes, the ball is in my court. Uh, I was definitely intrigued because Michael Caccino is one of the best composers working today. Um, and music, um, especially in film, is its own form of storytelling. Um, and he does that very, very well. So I was intrigued to see how he was going to do that with film. Um, I was a little bit surprised that, I mean, I know he's done a lot of Marvel work, but to have your first gig, <laughs> first directing gig, essentially be a Marvel thing. Um, I was a little bit surprised by that. Um, and as well as being intrigued, I was like, okay, he's got a lot to prove that he was worthy of getting uh, that opportunity because there's not a lot of people <laughs> uh, in the industry who could say that their first directorial gig was a Marvel Cinematic Studios thing. Um, so. Don't get back to you, uh, Hannah. Do you think that uh, he has shown that he earned this opportunity? Or no, do you think that he has made good on the opportunity that was given to him? I mean, I wasn't blown away by it. There wasn't anything that, anything that kind of made me feel like, oh, wow, this has got a key, key signature. I definitely feel like, you know, Gail Gus... Um, Gail Garcia Bernal, he's got, he's like perfect for this character. Mm-hmm. Cause I think there's like a playfulness and like a, like <laughs> awkwardness that he springs to so many roles. And as Jack mm-hmm. Russell, um, I think that was a really good bit of casting there to, mm-hmm. you know, he's just like, he's just trying to help his friend dead. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so I think there was that great element to it. I felt, I sometimes felt that people were in different movies, different films though. Mm. Like, um, I think there was a there was missed. It felt like there was missed opportunities for some of the supporting characters. Like I really felt like these characters are just here to die, than to offer anything else. Mm-hmm. Who was the person playing the very tall? I can't tell if it was uh, the person who was very tall wearing white, the final fluffy thing. It looked like Doug Jones, but like I'm pretty sure it's not. Yeah, I think I know who you mean. I don't know yeah. who, he was, who he was playing in though. Yeah, I don't know if it was. I don't know if it was a, 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 a woman, a, a man, yeah. non-binary. Like it was very androgynous, so I couldn't mm-hmm. really tell. So I, I felt like there was uh, the the main um, the the kind of um, Harriet Sansom Harris, who's who's the you know the wife of the Bloodstone, who's died, and they're all trying to <clears throat> get control of this Bloodstone so they can be the ultimate monster hunter. Mm-hmm. She felt like she was an American horror story. And the other people were just like in a normal Marvel world, like, do you know what I mean? So I think it was a bit 
like hmm. uneven hmm. in that sort of situation. What do you think? You say that uh, other people were in a normal Marvel world. For a few minutes, the spell I was under, I didn't quite feel that because of the black and white nature of it, uh, because of the setting of the world. I was hooked. Honestly, the thing that reminded me that we are in a Marvel world is when the werewolf was fighting and he was fighting like he was Captain America rather than the werewolf. Like the mm. guy was doing like kicks and punches and it felt like at least for a few scenes within the fighting of it all, that he wasn't fighting like yeah. a werewolf would. That is the thing that, oh, mm. this is... But I think that might be... Well, we'll get into it. That'll be too spoilery. But I can. Mm. I understand what you're saying. It was a bit too polished. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah. That My, you know, don't get me wrong. I think aesthetically, now there's a difference between like that, but actually the kind of composition of this world. Mm-hmm. I mean, I did find the black and white... I wonder if they were trying to get this dated effect of it where it wasn't just having it black and white. It was trying to make it look quite old because it's like yeah. that whole like... Yeah, no, there's, there's definitely a lot of nods like to Very that. vintage kind of feel yeah, to it. Old, like, you know, old old horror, kind of hammer horror sort of feel to it. Mm-hmm. Um, which I found um, wasn't as aesthetically pleasing. Like I would have liked it to be a bit sharper. But I wonder if that's because like, I don't know, the setting of it. Again, it's very self-contained. It was this kind of weird maze-like mosaic kind of I don't know, their home. Um, mm. I do like the fact that the only colour that were that was in it was red. Um, and the fact mm. that, you know, this is in a similar way that um, Thor Love and Thunder got got to be mm. bloody by having gold blood, by having mm. black and white, it could it was just literally like ripping throats out and all that type of stuff. So it was like, I'm glad that they at least made this a gnarly, gory yeah. thing, yeah. even if you can't see yeah. the actual to- blood colour of the blood splatter. Um, that does yeah. get, make me feel quite positive about um, Blade. But then I wondered, yeah. uh, is it though? Because I just don't know if they're going to... Yeah. I mean, I Honestly, don't know how I feel about Blade now. You know, Max and Tarek's taking off. Uh, yeah, that was very disappointing, that news. Honestly, I because it, uh, I'm sure you saw this, the intro for the first Blade was making the rounds on Twitter recently. And I watched that and I'm like, how do you top this? <laughs> no, no, literally. But that's what I'm saying. Yeah. I saw that and I was like, MCU could never <laughs> Like, I just don't think you can top that film. Like, mm. I think Blade is an actual perfect movie. I think mm. it's perfect. Yeah. Like, seriously, no notes. And how it's held up. Yeah. Like, obviously there's things that are a bit dated with the time, you know, obviously it's yeah. like, what, 90s, whatever. Mm-hmm. But like, or is it 90s or early 90s? Kind of that. No, it's area, 90s, you know I mean? 1990s. Yeah. yeah, and it's like that, for what they delivered at that time, it was like, this nailed it. Mm-hmm. This feels like, you know what I mean? It feels like capturing comic books, but also having a cinematic language there as well. Mm-hmm. And like getting that visual, getting the visuals of the kind of horror of it. Mm-hmm. It's so scary and sexy. And it's like, oh God, <laughs> like, yeah, I just, yeah. I just don't know if, I don't know if I can trust. Or, um, I don't know. I think there's clearly obviously issues with it. Yeah. Um, it's, it's inter- like this film. There's a I mean, lot- it's not a film. It's like a little kind of one note presentation. Yeah. It's like a one shot, really, isn't it? Yeah. Kind of a 52 minute one shot. Yeah. And it's a good thing to clarify because one of the things that I will say is that this film, you know, I, I, I love the low stakes nature of, ben, of, of Bernal's character in terms of just wanting to help his friend. 
you are right in that a lot of the other characters were just there to die. Even the uh, lead female character, her story is just a little bit too slight. I know this is a 52-minute one-shot, but I needed more on the bone there. Um, yeah, and I didn't even like the way that was performed. I didn't really... Mm. She, it was just a bit sullen. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, like I get, I get why people might watch this and feel a little bit worried for Blade because can you call this film scary? No. Can you call this film sort of really gory in the way that a Blade, um, original Blade, was? No. And I need Marvel to at least take it to one of those extremes when Blade rolls around, um, because. I, this with this, it's it's fine, but it's not like making yeah. me, you know. I need them to understand that Deadpool was an R-rated movie and it made <laughs> a shit ton. Yeah. I need them to understand that. I need them to understand that the Conjuring franchise and all these things that are horror mm. sell. So they are not. They're going to get all their. I honestly think they're going to get if they make it adult like if they allow it to be adult rather than trying to sanitize it you're not mm. going to lose anything mm-hmm. and you can have people dipping in and out yeah. it was interesting though speaking of and maybe we're going over but like speaking of um kind of bringing dipping people in and out of uh franchises she hulk this week oh spoilers so for She-Hulk. Fucking great spoilers for she hulk this yeah. week yeah i mean i love the way that matt murdoch slots into this world yeah. and also yeah. get it she hulk get it jen <laughs> Yeah, that was a fantastic episode. Probably the, my favorite episode of the season so far. Um, I really loved Matt Murdock. Uh, the banter, the chemistry between them is fantastic. Um, the, I mean, the lawyer scenes in the show are not the strong suit of the show, but this is the best lawyer scene in the oh, show. Oh, no, I love them. It's very, it's, <laughs> they've nailed it with the Ali McBeal stuff. And also, like, I don't know. I just, I just, yeah, I think it just... It really were. It's grown, grown on me. From the first episode, I was kind of worried that it was going to be too right on female rage, but this feels mm-hmm. like actually realistic and embedded in like what it yeah. feels like to be ghosted and like yeah. Yeah. to be trolled and all this type of stuff, which are very she, real things. She um, has. She. 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 I mean. It would, I mean, would, that whole episode, the previous one, where she's a, she's like oh, wasting so text. It's like, <laughs> oh, this is why are you so loud? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Nah. Um. You know. Jen has made a big thing in this entire show about being under control. And we've seen that under even sort of, you know, stress circumstances, she is still under control. She is not under control at the end of this episode, but yeah. that moment is very, very earned. You and know I'm very excited to see what it leads to in the finale next week. You know what's funny about seeing She-Hulk um, is that, uh, obviously, I had finished writing my book before I'd seen it. Yeah. But um, my book out, if you still want to, <laughs> came out last week, if you want to get Can't it. I can't believe you haven't mentioned that before, Hannah. No, audiobook, ebook, <laughs> fighting stores. Um, there's a bit in it where I talk, I do a chapter where I look talk about like, you know, sexual assault and me too. And there's a, mm-hmm. there's a bit in it where I say, there's this moment in Avengers Assemble, the Avengers, where like they're on the battle in the Battle of New York and Cap's like, Hey, <laughs> hey, um, hey, Bruce, maybe it's time to get angry. And he goes, That's my secret. I'm always angry. And I'm like, That's me. I'm Bruce. Like, I'm always angry. And I love the fact that when I watched the first episode of She Hulk, it's like, I'm angry all the time. That's women. I was like, Yes. And I love it. It's like, Yes, it is. So, uh, you know, I kind of get it, but I didn't want it to all be like this very on the nose thing. But I think they really handled it well. Um, 
So, yeah, anything else on Werewolf by Night? I mean, yeah, it's fine. It's a good... I'm glad it was only 52 minutes, yeah. if anything. Yeah. Um, I would have been disappointed if the score for this film was not good. But it is, because it's Michael Guccino and the score is good. Can I also mention, we forgot to mention, uh, Man-Thing. Yes! <laughs> Which was so cool! Yeah. And I wonder, I do wonder if Man-Thing might come pop up in The Guardian's. Really? Because (laughs) me watching the Guardians of the Galaxy animated series, uh, (laughs) there is a kind of episode, a few episodes of Man-Thing pops up. I also find it so funny that Man-Thing and Swamp-Thing are basically the same thing. Yeah, basically. But um, I hope hope Jack Russell is not retired. I hope this is not a one-off. I hope we see um, Ted Man-Thing again. I love their relationship. I think I've read a, a quote from Kevin Feige that says this corner of the universe that we've now been introduced to is going to end up playing a big part in the MCU going forward. But and it I makes mean, sense. It's horror, yeah. baby. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, so it is time for our stream or skip recommendations on Werewolf by Night. Uh, Hannah. Stream. I'm also going to say stream. Yeah. There's, that, there's enough to like it. Hey. Hey. So... About that other host. <laughs> I think we've got a I think we got a little message before we get into our hot take. Uh, so let's go. Ahoy there. Ahoy there, ladies. This is Clarice Lockery, Fate of Black, a podcast co-host. And I'm so sorry that I couldn't be there this week. Uh it is a full moon tonight, so you know, had to take precautions. But I thought I'd uh Send in, really quickly, my own screen, stream, or skip judgments on this week's movies. Uh, First up, The Woman King. Absolutely screen. Uh, I think Gina Prince-Bythewood is uh, a genius director. And I, I like that, you know, this film just kind of captures the spirit of what the historical epic genre is all about this sort of like absolute thrilling adrenaline pumping depiction of heroism and the the beauty of the costumes and the production design it's just like that's you know I love historical epics and this is like a historical epic so I love this I thought it was so great uh definitely screen uh nothing compares uh, I think is also a screen for me. Uh, I was really moved by this documentary. I think the smartest choice that Catherine Ferguson made as a director was really to center Sinead O'Connor's voice in this movie because, I mean, that's kind of the entire point of the documentary is that for so long people have spoken of her on behalf of her but have never really allowed her the space to talk everyone's just always been trying to shut her up and I I think to have that and also to continually put it in the context of like recent Irish Irish history um the the legacy of political activism in pop music uh I thought it was really well done so that is a screen from me uh and finally werewolf by night this is this is a stream from me. I I thought it was really fun. I think it's 
as a like as a tribute to universal horror like it's not really it's just a marvel thing that's in black and white <laughs> the references are, are very limited i would say uh but it's like a as a as a spooky Halloween special, it was really fun. I liked the creature that they had that I am been told and have been made aware that is from Marvel Comics. But I I thought that creature was really cool. I love Gail Garcia Bernal because he's so good. <laughs> like, he doesn't get to play this kind of character often, but I think he's so good. And he has such great comic timing when it comes to playing like slightly witless characters, like just very confused guy trying to figure out what's happening, which is sort of what he's doing here. And and he's so funny. Um, and I wouldn't mind seeing more of Gail Garcia Bernal Werewolf. We'll see. Blade? Maybe. But that's it from me. Thank you. And I will see everyone next week. Goodbye. That was the Clarice Lockery uh, making her Fate to Black appearance uh, for this episode. Uh, we love you. We miss you. We will see you. In court. <laughs> <laughs> but until that time, it is time for our That was a good one. <laughs> Uh, so yes, uh, Chris Pratt, the guy who's been cast in seemingly everything, one of the things that he was cast as was Super Mario in the Super Mario Bros. movie, and the first trailer for that movie was released this week. Uh, there have been a lot of reports saying that we weren't going to believe Chris Pratt's accent in this movie, and lo and behold, I didn't believe it because his accent oh, was just place? normal Chris Pratt. Should we hear it? <laughs> Do not touch that mushroom, you'll die! Oh, I'm sorry. That one's perfectly fine. Come on, Mario! Mushroom Kingdom, here we come! Huh. So... What was your reaction? <laughs> when when you I first, first heard it, so the first time I saw saw this was on Twitter. So an animator had basically ripped Chris Pratt's voice and then animated it with Linda from Bob's Burger, oh, wow. and uh, <laughs> and it was absolutely perfect. I was like, no, I hear it. But then I listened to it without Linda's face on it and just in the original trailer, mm-hmm. and. It felt like, well, it sounded to me like he was trying to like do a like a high pitched version of Rocket Rubicoon. <laughs> yeah, and I just—it's uh, a drugstore rocket. It's just what well, I don't understand why he was cast in this role. Maybe you know, I'm being very generous here. Maybe when I watch the full film, my mind will be changed because sometimes it takes you a minute to acclimatize to the film and its voice acting. And, and and then things sort of, you know, get better. Uh, but on the basis of this first look, and granted you've only heard about five seconds of his voice, but it's just left me scratching my head. And it's also left me just thinking, let's respect the art of voice acting and really cast pers- people who specialize in that more and maybe would fit these roles more. Um, yeah, I mean... 
It do you, it's interesting with Chris Pratt because I feel like we should have a conversation about the wider like animosity towards him that he's suddenly developed yeah. over the years. And the thing is, I don't really, I don't really have a problem with him. And I, I I'm actually quite like I find the I think it's a bit much. Mm-hmm. A lot of the stuff they get to tap for, and I think it's a lot. It can be quite overwhelming to see such hate um, yeah. towards someone who who has basically maybe done a maybe. Has has gone online and every celebrity has made the mistake of opening himself up and realizing actually not the public doesn't want to have all of them. You know, mm-hmm. you know. I think it's because I don't. I think he's great in Guardians of the Galaxy. I thought he was great in Onwards. His voice acting in Onwards, he's great. Like he is a good actor in certain things, but it's just I feel like ever since he's like buffed up and lost that kind of Andy Dwyer charm from mm. Parks and Recreation. And after the split for Anna Faris as well, that there's become there's such a focus on his personal life that it's like now we can't accept it. I mean, the reason I find it frustrating with Chris Pratt every time I fucking look at him is because he didn't follow the plan and he let his emotions get the better of him. And we could have beat Thanos if he just held his fucking cool. Well, see, I'm, that's I'm, I'm, what annoys me, but not enough for me to be like, fuck this guy, you know. <laughs> It wasn't Chris Pratt, uh, Hannah, it was Star Lord. No, I know, so but just... he's the face of Star Lord. So <laughs> every time I see him, I'm like, oh, I'm but Star I'm glad, I mean, just, just on the Star Lord of it all, I'm glad you brought this up because I think I was discussing this with actually Clarice uh, the other day. But yes, Star Lord is at fault for that uh, annoying mistake in Infinity War. But the beautiful thing about the writing in Infinity War is it's not just his fault. It's everybody's fault in one way, in one shape or form. It's Thor's fault for letting his emotions get the better of him and not going for the head. It's uh, Cap's fault for not listening to Vision and destroying the uh, Mind Stone when they had the chance, when Thanos wasn't even in the picture yet. It's Cap and Tony's fault for splitting up the Avengers because of their personal beef, which meant that they weren't prepared for Thanos. All of these things contributed... (laughs) It was really Nebula's fault. She should have kept her mouth closed. <laughs> <laughs> it's Star-Lord's fault, or, or even Gamora's fault, for telling Star-Lord about the... Uh... Wait, no, 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 no. No, it, yeah, I'll do that again. It's Gamora's fault for letting Nebula know that she knew where the uh, stone was, that, that the Red Skull was guarding, because um, then th- 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 there's so many different things points, that we can say. This is not fair. <laughs> I don't hear it. But, You're being uh, but, reasonable, uh, and I don't need to hear this reason. <laughs> but the thing, like, and the beautiful thing about the writing is that all of these actions that I just listed, they are completely in character. Um, and in the moment, they don't feel like bad choices. But given how everything plays out with hindsight being 2020, we look back and it's like, actually, if you did that, then this might have had a different outcome. That's why that's one of the reasons why that yeah. film is so f- f- phenomenal. But when you uh, you're, you're talking about Chris Pratt and you know once he got buff, things changed. The thing that I remember, I remember the, after the first Guardians of the Galaxy, Chris Pratt was the coolest guy in the galaxy. Yeah, everyone was. liked him. It was the combination of <laughs> what his character did in the Infinity War, his split with Anna Faris, and just the. I guess because I remember that day when, like, all of the Avengers did messages of support for Chris Pratt, like basically leave Chris. Pratt oh yeah, because it's like, who's the worst, Chris? <laughs> yeah, 
Yeah. And that was annoying. But that's what I mean. It's like little things like that. It's like, yeah. oh man, that's, yeah. But, I, but if anybody can rehabilitate Chris Pratt, at least on screen, it's going to be James Gunn with Guns of the Galaxy Volume yeah, 3. Yeah. And I think he's going to do it very well. Yeah. But I suppose, yeah, I think the problem with Chris Pratt is that he's, he, the way he's presented himself on social media has been quite awkward. And there's slight yeah, there's questions about the church that he goes to. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, it's like, Amsterdam is a movie that just came out this week, right? Mm-hmm. And it's directed by David O. Russell, which we've chosen not to cover this week because mm-hmm. he's an abusive person on set and he allegedly assaulted his niece. Mm-hmm. Um, so, like, he's a terrible person. But then you've got people like Margot Robbie and all these people working with him. So it's kind of like, why isn't there widespread, like, attacking of all these actors for working with this guy again, even though he's headbutting George Clooney, all these type of stuff? Like, I don't know if Chris Pratt has actually done anything, like, abusive or anything like that, but he's been cancelled in a way that feels like... Not cancelled, like, yeah. I don't think he's deserving of this as much animosity he has. And it's fine in public. This is, again, we talk about it. It's like, I think it's fine to have these jokes around in, like, your WhatsApp group stuff, but yeah. everything's so online. It's like, yeah. I can imagine it, but it must be quite hard. There's a cumulative effect that must weigh yeah. on at times, for sure. But let's take that off the table. Mm-hmm. It should never have been cast as Mario. <laughs> it is an absolute outrage. Yeah. I just, it feels like, it feels like between this and House of Gucci, it's like, could, like, could, are they, like, no, it's like, have you not seen, like, a Scorsese film? Like, there are plenty of Italian actors working, right? Like, who, like, I feel like Paul Giamatti. Bobby Cannavale. He would have been great. Bobby Cannavale. Paul Giamatti would have been a great Mario. There's loads of Italian. There's like (laughs) loads of Italian Americans or Italians who could have done it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I did see this. I did see a trailer with the French dub. And I'm like, am I going to have to watch the French dub just so I can hear some? Or the Italian. I might just watch the Italian dub and then watch subtitles. And that's what I'm doing. Just putting the request to the PR. So this screening that you're putting on, uh, can you just change the couple of things? (laughs) <laughs> yeah yeah i mean again um let's the first impression has not been good but you never know let's wait and see what the full body or at least you know a, a two-minute trailer that gives us more of the voice and more of the context mm. and puts him in situations where we get to sort of hear sort of how he sounds maybe we'll feel differently i don't think um, so but maybe. i we said why he's being cast, and I feel like the most obvious answer is that he's a white bankable star who can get yeah. every single part of America, middle America. Like the right wing loves him. I mean, I think some left wing like Marvel people love him. I feel like he's that sort of actor mm. where he's got yeah. enough yeah. recognition yeah. and like appeal, maybe. Yeah. I mean, I'm going to put a little bit of respect on his name here in that he has done some good voice acting work before. You mentioned Onward. His performances in the Lego movies have been very, very Oh, good. yeah. Um, I do love him in Lego you know, movies. He was, in fact, awesome in those Lego movies, you could say. Because <laughs> Brett is awesome. Um, so, so yeah. Uh, I just, I, d- I don't know about this role. But, you know, so, but- screen the stream or skip <laughs> the trailer for, <laughs> for Mario. Oh, dear. It's a skip for me for now. <laughs> um, but, uh, but, yeah. We we shall see. We will be watching closely, Mr. Pratt. Um, so, yeah. And on that note, that is it for episode 82 of the Fate to Black podcast. Happy viewing by whatever medium is the safest for you. And please rate, please subscribe, please do a review for us because it really, really makes a difference. 
and you can tweet us a hot take uh, that you want us to tackle on next week's show and the next week's show after that and the next week's show after that. Go crazy. We will have a look. We will engage and we'll make a decision. But until that time, you can follow us. I'm on Twitter and Instagram at Among Women. I'm at Hannah Flint on Twitter, at Hannah and S. Flint on Instagram, and you can follow us, the podcast, at Fade to Black Pod on Twitter. And most importantly, you can purchase Strong Female Character as a oh, book, well, yeah, as an audiobook, as an ebook. As and you know what, you can even just approach Hannah Flint on the street, and she will she will read out excerpts of the book for you live because she's just that cool. Why don't you hang? Quote unquote, I'm a slut for superheroes. <laughs> <laughs> That's the one you're going to open with. It's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but until that time, until you track Hannah Flint down, uh, farewell, film friends. It's time to fade to black. Mm-hmm.